Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com. Hello and welcome to the Young Contentables podcast. I am your host, Pete Neal, and I'm joined by a returning guest. And uh, that guest is John Shanahan. Uh, some of you may remember John from episode 10 when he was talking to Jake Brown about his uh, collection of militaria and also his time in the Irish Army. John, how are you? I'm good, mate. How are you? I believe it's grown a bit more since I was here the last time, but uh, it's always good to be back. And it's great to have you back, mate. It really is. So today we are doing a film review and that film is Danger Close. So John's came on because he has quite a vast collection of uh, Australian military from the Vietnam conflict. So the film is called Danger Close. It was released uh, in 2019. Um, and it was all filmed in Australia, believe it or not. The scenery was really good, considering it was all filmed in Australia. But the film itself is actually a true story, so which obviously uh, brings quite a lot to the table as well, because it's actually telling a story. And this is one of these sort of films that got me interested in military history, having this realisation that some of these films are actually based on truth. And it's about the Australians during the Vietnam War, a little-known entity, because uh, when everyone says Vietnam... Everyone sees uh, the, the Americans, uh, the Australians and New Zealanders never really get mentioned that often. But I think in recent years, though, they, they have started getting more of a recognition for the uh, efforts they put into Vietnam. So the film is based in August 1966 when D Company, so 18th of August, sorry, 1966, when D Company of the 6th Royal Australian Regiment encountered a, um, a large force of VC and NVA in the Long Tan rubber plantation just outside of their base camp at Nui Dat. And it would be the biggest battle the Australians would fight in the entire war. Because after that battle, the, Australia, the, the Vietnamese didn't really want to get into a major battle with them after that ever again. And, and this is what makes the story quite special. And I think, uh, and I, and I think you'd agree with me, John, that you had 100 men, there's 108 Australian soldiers from D Company under the command of Major Harry Smith, fought off about 3,000 MVA and VC soldiers. Yeah, um, 
like I mean a, a bit of a bit of backstory I suppose about Long Tang. You can't really talk about Long Tang unless you bring in the backstory. Now I'm fascinated with the Vietnam War, but not the Americans. Everybody thinks of the Americans in Vietnam. There was a lot more armies there other than the, than than the Americans. You had the Australians that we're speaking about tonight. You had the New Zealanders. You had Koreans. You had Filipinos. There was lots of different armies there. And they all fought the war completely different than the Americans. Um, the Australians had brought an awful lot of experience with them from the Malayan emergency, uh, from fighting in Borneo, from fighting other little small little insurgencies that people don't know about. And I, I, I don't know that people don't care or they just don't know about the actual conflicts. But um, Long Tan basically was the Vietnamese putting it to the to the Australians and the Australians basically going no holes barred and the Vietnamese not wanting to engage with the Australians for the vast majority of the war. They had a lot more experience. They had a lot more um, fighting and experience fighting an insurgency war than the Americans had. And the Australians had sent a battalion prior to 6th RAR going to uh, Vietnam, where the, I think they were the 173rd. Uh, Pete, you probably know a bit better than that. I'm not sure. Yeah, it was the um, 173rd. Yeah, the 173rd. And they sent a battalion in that battle group. And after they had initially went there with the, the, the conflict, they, they stood back and went, hang on a second. We don't fight our conflict or we don't want to fight the war like this. So then... Long Tan, Nui Dat, that's where their area came into um, operations. Yes, yeah, so I, I agree with you, John. The, uh, the, 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 the Australians, they were, they were born jungle fighters, weren't they, uh, from that wealth of experience of uh, the previous conflicts you just mentioned. And I think the other thing to mention as well is at the time that the Battle of Long Tan happened, Nui Dat was still being built as well. Uh, it was literally like a little tent city um there was hardly a perimeter well there was there was an exclusion zone that they'd um created where they bulldozed about three well, it was about was it about 300 about three kilometers or something like that they actually bulldozed all the uh all the jungle so they actually had a clear line of fire all around new Edat. obviously they had the uh infantry there with the uh new zealanders as well and Right slap bang in the middle on the high ground at SAS Hill was the uh, SAS um, overlooking the camp. But at the time, like I said, they were still building. The, they were still building the place. So all these made like proper fortification is only sort of still in its infancy in a way because they've only just set the place up. You're right. I think it was three or four kilometers that they set a perimeter around that camp, and anything in that camp was or anything within that perimeter was fair game. Yes, it was. It was a free fire zone. So it was, uh, they let the farmers come back during the day. So if there was uh, farmland there, they allowed the farmers to come and farm the land during the day. But then, after, but they set a curfew. After that curfew, any Vietnamese in that exclusion zone, like you said, John, they were, they were fair game. So, John, when the film first came out, what was your very first expectations? I suppose my first reaction to when I heard Danger Close was coming out, first of all, was because um, this was an Australian film made in Australia. Um, so I'm thinking, what way is the quality going to be of this? And then I thought back to other Australian war films that have been made that maybe later on we could talk about. But you have the likes of The Light Horseman and Kokoda, 
which was a World War II movie, um, they were fantastic, fantastic films. So I'm thinking to myself, going, okay, well, we'll forget about the odd angry shot because that's hit and miss. But we'll forget about um, that movie. But in, in general relation to what movies that the Australians made in relation to war movies, they were fairly fantastic. So I was actually looking forward to it. And I, I suppose we need to speak in conjunction with the actual documentary. There was a documentary made before this movie by the same team and director. I think it was the same director, if not the same producer. Yeah, I agree. The so I, I was very aware of the Battle of Longtown um, for many years. Um, obviously, from doing my Vietnam stuff in the living history world, um, I've, I have got that interest in the Australian stuff. So like you, John, I have Australian kit. Um, the way I became aware of the Battle of Longtown, I was probably about 19 or 20. I was at the time. Randomly, I won a book in a raffle and, and it was all about Long Tan. I was like, what's this all about? And I read the book and the author, I can't remember the name of the author now, but this book is fantastic. And what the author did, he he writes obviously from a historical perspective on, so he gives you the broader picture. But what he does is he'll go, well, this is what Major Smith was doing at the time. And what he did was he, all the members, the still like, surviving members of D Company, he actually interviewed as many as he could. And if he could put that veteran's account into the context of what he's talking about, he put it in there. And it was a fan, fantastic book. And, and I was glued to it. It's a great book, it was. Uh, and that's what made me aware of it. And like you said, John, um, there was a very good documentary. And it's actually on YouTube. So we'll put a link to that um in the description so this this documentary is on youtube like i just said and it was actually made um for the australian war museum and it was a it's a cracking documentary brilliant uh like dramatized sequences um they've even got the recordings of the radio transmissions of the lads um when they were there um and it and 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 also you've got the veterans talking as well it's it, it's a fantastic documentary and like you john knowing what happened during the Battle of Longtown and seeing this fantastic documentary, which I think is one of the best documentaries I've ever seen in my life on anything. Um, it was so well done and so well put together. As soon as I heard the film Longtown was coming out or Danger Close, I thought to myself, well, it's got a lot to live up to. There's no, there's, there's not many films about the Australians and in the conflicts that they've been involved in. Um, apart from, you know, the ones that you've just mentioned, John. Um, but for something like Long Tan, it needs to be something special in the sense of it really needs to do justice for the, lad, for the lads of D Company and all the other support elements that were involved in that battle as well. Because that is, um, in, my, in my opinion, the Battle of Long Tan is just as important as Gallipoli is for the Anzacs. Yeah, I'd have to agree with you hugely. Um, I suppose in every, in, in every conflict, um, that militaries have fought in, especially we we'll say the likes of British militaries and uh, Australian Irish militaries, whatever conflict they've in, e each conflict has its own individual battle that rings true uh, and, and is sort of like the penultimate battle of that conflict. And definitely what we're talking about tonight, um, the Battle of Long Ten, was the, was the penultimate battle for. The Viet, uh, for the Australians in Vietnam, um, just like you said, Gallipoli for the First World War, um, probably Kokoda or 
Tobruk in the Second World War. When when I heard Danger Close was being made or uh, this, I was like thinking to myself, oh my God, please don't go down the same route that you did with Odd, Odd Angry Shot. Okay, Odd Angry Shot, the kit, things like that um, was acceptable, shall we say. But in relation to that storyline, they, they, they portray the SAS as a bunch of donkeys. Um, when, you, when you consider the conflict, or the actual real SAS involvement in, 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 in Vietnam, um, but so I was I was dreading that Danger Close was going to go down the same route, but thankfully it didn't. It it, it surpassed all my expectations when I I uh, watched the movie. Um, and in relation to the documentary, if you if you watch the documentary, which as as Pete as you said, it is the most fantastic documentary I've ever seen. It has the original uh, radio recordings of the guys actually in combat. Um, it has the veteran accounts. Um, it's n- narrated by um, I can't think of his name, but he was the the, uh, the Australian actor that was in Avatar. Um, fantastic, absolutely superb piece of of uh, cinematic or documentary uh, portrayal of that. And if if you watch that documentary prior to watching Danger Close, it it increases watching the movie, I suppose, tenfold. It does absolutely, because um, obviously, like everything with movies, they can only cram so much into that hour and a half or two hours um, that a documentary can't, because obviously everything needs to be dramatized. So certain things in it, like any film, where certain things do happen, but they don't happen the way they actually happened. But it, you know, it's all do the poetic license that they got and all that. But if you watch that documentary, then watch danger close it put it does put a lot of things into perspective because when you see some of the things that are happening you go ah i remember this from the documentary this is this is what they're recreating from that and and obviously the vet- veteran testimonies testimonies as well um like there's one where the, the platoon sergeant from 11 platoon will come into his story a little bit later uh about the initiation of the battle and i thought the recreation in danger close of that happening was actually quite good to how i can remember him talking about it in the documentary so we've had our expectations of the uh, of the film so we've got our expectations of it the film is now on screen so what was your very first thoughts in those first say three minutes of the film starting john uh without giving too much away i suppose in relation to the storyline of the film my first expectation was when i seen i can't think of the, the actor's name now off the top of my head um travis something or other he played um uh, travis yes he played travis in, in vikings he did i think he's probably the most um yeah. famous actor well from like from our side of the world i think yeah in yeah. that film so uh, initially, initially, when I seen the first ten minutes, I was waiting for him to take out a broadsword and a round shield, and then I, I, I suppose, personally, really stereotyping the actor. But within the first two minutes, uh, without giving too much away, what happened was the main base came under uh, mortar attack, and it's basically him getting to the command post to deal with what was going on. Within that first two minutes all my expectations of this Viking Radnor Logbrook to whip out a broadsword and start going nuts completely left me. And I was in Vietnam. I was watching him not as the previous character. I was watching him as 
Harry Smith, who was the major of D Company, sixth uh, RAR at the time. Um, so literally from the first three minutes of the movie, five minutes of the movie, I was hooked from start to finish. Yeah, he, he, he does an outstanding job, I think, of playing Harry Smith. The only thing that got me uh, at the start is, is that you still hear that sort of Ragnar twang in his voice still, where he hasn't quite lost the accent for playing a Viking for the last 10 years. Um, that was what I noticed in like the sort of opening shots when in certain ways he'd say things. But then as the film sort of progresses, you you can actually hear his Australian accent through, through his Ragnar <laughs> accent. But yeah, I'm the same, John. Um, so at the beginning of the film, um, you see a few Hueys uh, flying flying in the air. Um, it, but for me, I, it, it was taking a little bit of a while to kind of get started to try and set the mood. But like you said, as soon as that mortar strike happens, which did happen, because this is this is what this is what the prelude of the battle was, is the fact of they were mortared the night before. So you got Harry Smith walking to his command post to organize a defense and he, and he got things going on around the camp as well so you start seeing some of the main characters like a couple of the platoon commanders some of the platoon sergeants but like, you'll see that before the mortar attack happens as well so you'll you're getting the introduction of some of the characters as well it's one of the little uh details i really liked about it is that uh you see it throughout the film because this character turns up quite a lot he's the plotter for the new zealand artillery so the plotter is the bloke who receives the fire control order um, and he's the one who plots it. So he gets his grid reference. He's got his map in front of him, his rulers and his pencils, and he's the one making the marks, basically then passing it on to the gun pits uh, to put the shells down. And I thought that was a brilliant scene when you first, because usually when in, in war films, like, you don't really see that sort of thing. You, all you see is them um, given a grid reference and suddenly artillery is going down. But no, you've got a radio transmission goes in, fire control order goes in. The plotter, he listens, he goes, right, where are you? So he gets his rulers out, he's plotting it all, he goes, right, there they are. Then he gets on, then he gets on to the other handset and goes, fire mission, uh, one round for effect, blah, blah, blah. And then you've got the gunners swinging into action. I thought that was a brilliant little piece to add into the uh, authenticity of it. Yeah, um, I'd have to agree with you on that. There were small little details as well, start, straight out from the start, that... Um, start to string into string into my mind as well like uh when you consider the makeup of the australian army especially in vietnam as well you had regular army troops and you had what, what they call nationals which was national conscripts or national servicemen uh, then again i suppose I, i'm going to give a scene here that should be probably in favorite scenes but there's a, another scene later on that definitely sticks out of my mind but you have an officer playing cards with a group of guys when there's mortars coming in and he is a um, national service officer, so he's very nonchalant. I don't really care. And you can see his platoon sergeant, who is a professional soldier, trying to light a fire under his arse, going, "Come on, sir! Look, we need to find this. We need a bearing to see where these rounds are coming from." And he's like, "Going, no, no, I'm just going to play cards." So initially, from the start, um, you could start picking out the difference between. Uh, and I was trying to do it throughout the film, whereas you could pick out a guy who was professional soldier and national service. And the way that the Australians had trained their men and trained their army, it was a, it was very hard to do. Um, only for I had as I, we touched again, and I'm sorry to go back and touch on it. Only for I watched the documentary, I could tell who was national service and who was professional soldier. 
it was it was extremely hard to tell. Um, and that was a, a, a little detail from the start that I found very, very interesting. Yeah, and that's a testimony to the acting, I think, for him to be able to portray that. So I remember the uh, the brigadier who was in command of the task force um, from from the documentary, and he put it quite well, actually, when he said about, yeah, we had our national servicemen and our regular soldiers, but he said the national servicemen or the nachos, we didn't see them as national servicemen. We saw them as two-year regular soldiers, and that was the end of it. Uh, and I thought that, him saying that, I'm like, you know what, that's probably a key to what a lot of their success was during the Vietnam conflict as a whole as well. You know, you know, they were, they were, yes, they were national servicemen, but they played the game for two years. Yeah, so yeah, you're absolutely right there, John. That was another outstanding little bit of detail. So the mortar attack has happened. Uh, obviously, the next day, they need to start sending out patrols. I think it was B Company, I believe, were already out in the oh, scrub. I think, I, I think it was A Company. I was at A Company. I might, yeah, okay, if you go to A Company, we're out already out in the scrub that they already been out. They've come back in, not seen anything. D Company's turn was to go out. But at the same time, they've also got an entertainment troupe turning up, which is uh, Little Petty, uh, Little Patty, sorry, who was a famous Australian singer from the time. And it was great that they involved, they had her in the uh, film as well. Because even in documentary, it's mentioned quite a lot that she was there. But anyway, D Company, they got a bit of a sad on because they knew they were going to miss the concert. Um, but they went out anyway. They'd done, the, they'd done the handover with the company that was already out there. And they moved on. And they found the base plates. So the so what they had done was the Vietnamese mortar crews had set up the mortars, fired their rounds, but they left the base plates behind. So all they had to do the next night, if they were coming back, was to just put the tube into the plate and they don't need to set it because they knew exactly the distance it needed to be. But they found the base plates, pulled them up, took them away, and they, and they started moving on. It's when they start making their push through Little Patty's concert start has already started, and a lot of the veterans are saying that you could hear it. So when they're um, so in the distance, they could actually hear the concert happening in Nui Tat, which made them even more angry <laughs> as well because they're sat out in the scrub while all the rest of the lads are in the task force are um, sat watching a concert of Little Patty. But then Eleven Platoon meet a contact, and that's where Sergeant of Eleven Platoon he sees I think it's three or five MVA soldiers walking down a track. He comes out, he drops one of them or, or two of them. Uh, they then pick the MVA, Vietnamese, the MVA, pick up the two bodies or a couple of bodies and drag them away. Then that's when the contact goes into Major Smith and he says, what do you want us to do? And he said, chase them. And that's what they did. So 11 platoon were hot on the heels of this little section of MVA, hot on the heels of them. And then suddenly they just hit into, into a hail of fire. Subsequently, the starting rounds of... The Battle of Long Tan. Yeah, you literally started the battle. Um, from what I remember off the top of my head, 11 platoon extended into an extended skirmish line and they had crossed the road after that initial engagement. I think they'd, got, they'd gone into a rubber plantation that was an old Dutch plantation uh, going way, way back. Was it, yeah, so was it Dutch or French? Yeah, it was French. Yeah, it was yeah. from the, the French Indochina era. Yeah, and I remember specifically... Um, that sergeant, the 11 platoon sergeant, forgive me now, I can't remember the top of top of my head what his name was. But um, I think his first name was Bob. I can't remember. Uh, was it Brunswick? Brunswick? Like Bob, Brunswick, Bob, Bob Brunswick, Brunswick, Brunswick. Brunswick. Yeah, Bob Brunswick, something like that. Yeah. But um, uh, every, he, he, he specifically says in the documentary, the trees were in rows. No matter where you looked, it was a straight line. 
And he said, literally, they had crossed this road and within 100 metres of going into this plantation, he said the forest opened up in front of him. And he, he said it just, you could feel the bullets passing them and they all hit the ground. And I think that initially in the initial, that, that initial engagement after they had engaged that patrol of NVA, they lost something like four or five guys with just the initial burst of rounds that came through the trees at them. And so 11 platoon were the platoon that was in contact with the enemy. All the other platoons hadn't got into contact yet. Um, and like we said, that is the start of what will become this massive battle. So to start off with, the platoon initially gets cut off. They suffer a lot of casualties for the course of the battle. So it, to in the, in the initial stage of the battle, they didn't think the force was that much bigger than a platoon that we're up against at that time. It wasn't until the other platoon started getting into contact, they knew it was then... Uh, a greater enemy force and turns out to be a couple of battalions of NVA who were literally on their way to Nui Dat um, to uh, overrun the base camp. So they've actually stopped the NVA in their tracks. And then that's where things start getting a bit uh, bit leery, isn't it, John, then? Yeah, I mean, the um, like the Vietnamese tactic at the time was to get very, very close to the uh, their, their enemy or whoever they were attacking. Um, so we've, we've said 11 platoon became so engaged that they couldn't go forward or they couldn't go backwards. So I think it was 10 platoon was ordered to move towards 11 platoon. Yeah, and then it was they 10 got, platoon. Yeah, they got slammed. Um, and like that, they couldn't go forward, they couldn't go backwards. Um, so I think it was at that stage that uh, the major, Harry Smith, he radioed back um to Nui Dat to say we think that we're engaging um an element your size which meant it was a battalion size so now you have a company of whatever whatever the company was at that strength now engaging a battalion of a thousand men now I don't know if any of you know anything about military tactics but military tactics is bound by the law of three which means that um if you're engaging a target, you should outnumber it at least three times. So when they thought that they were attacking a platoon, they were fine because you have four or sorry, you have three companies or three platoons in a company. So they outnumbered that platoon. But now all of a sudden the role has reversed. So you have one company being outnumbered by three other companies. So. They were in deep, deep doo-doo at that stage um, when they started getting outnumbered. And then this is where a, a character comes forth, um, where he is the artillery, the, the uh, forward observation officer. He starts literally holding back the VC and the NVA with artillery. Um, and then later on in the film, he, he, he comes up with some hard choices about whether to call off the fire or whether to keep the fire going. But um, that initial engagement for the first, I suppose, 15, 20 minutes when they still hadn't figured out what was happening. It was him that was keeping the company alive by providing artillery fire. Yeah, and he continued to do so throughout the whole battle as well because the artillery fire became really, really intense from the New Zealand gunners. Um, I think by the end of the battle, they've est they estimated that the guns had fired about 3,000 rounds, something like that, by the end of the day. Um, it, it got that bad because where the... Um, the gun pits um, had their stack of uh, shells ready to go. 
at one point in the battle towards the end, they had actually expended all the animation in their in their in, in the ammo pits by the guns. And they actually had to form a daisy chain of anybody that was available. So your cooks, your blanket stackers, all them people all had to form a daisy chain from the gun pits all the way to the main magazine to actually handball as a daisy chain to move shells up to the gun pits just to keep that fire going continuously. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. I remember in the, uh, in the book I read, they were saying that the, um, by nightfall at the end of the battle, there was like a haze over the top of Nui Dat, and that was all the cordite. That was from the guns going off, but also the ends of the, the muzzles of the guns were glowing red, where they put so many rounds through them, as well. And and that's and and, it, and it's really well uh, portrayed in the film as well. Uh, you see the New Zealand gunners in their gun pit, and they're also um, giving out uh, fire control orders on the guns as well. And that's something you don't always see very often in war films either. So at this point, the battle's now in full swing. Little Patty's been told she can't have her concert anymore. <laughs> So um, she's airlifted out. Um, but what they there's one thing they don't show in the film is I believe it was her guitarist. It was uh, as they were making their way to the chop. So little little Patty uh, mentioned this in an interview I watched a few years ago. Um, this was probably filmed in probably the eighties or the nineties, and she said that they they knew something was happening. Uh, the blokes all like dispersed over to their stations where they needed to be. They were told they need to get out. So they're on their way back to the helicopters to get to get out. But a group of uh, Anzac soldiers captured the guitarist, Carl. Uh, Carl, um, oh, I can't remember his last name, but his first name's Carl. They actually, they actually captured him and dragged him back off the, um, off the helipad and threw him in a bunker because um, I think it was actually the blokes from A Company who had just come back. They were like, hang on a minute. We've been out all day and we've come back to watch a concert. We want to watch a concert. So they kidnapped the guitarist and he actually spent the rest of the day because once obviously little Patty, she disappeared in her helicopter. He had to stay on uh, the base during the whole battle and spend the night there before he could be lifted back out again. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's fu- it's funny that way because the, the uh Military guys, speak, speaking for myself, being a, being a, a, a former soldier, we have a dark, dark sense of humor, and I can, I can, I know what you're saying about like, the, the, like we we were promised a concert. We want a concert, no matter what's happening. We're having a concert. Um. So yeah, it, it would not surprise me, and because Paddy said it, um, it it doesn't surprise me at all that that happened. 
Yeah, and that was something that I thought I think would have been quite amusing to put in there, but I don't know if it had worked, you know, it'd been worked with like the way that like the film was being portrayed, you know. But I thought if they'd have done that, that'd just been one of those little those little snippets that would have been quite amusing. And people that had maybe studied the battle quite a bit would have gone, Oh, I know what's going on here. They're kidnapping the guitarist. <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah, but I suppose it's one of those things too, where it's like, um, we can't put that into the movie because no one will believe it unless they were actually there and guys are going, yeah, we did that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so for the course of the battle, there is countless acts of bravery um, that happened during the battle. Been uh, two helicopter pilots as well who actually flew in ammunition to the lads of Deco because they, by that point they expended all their ammunition or vast majority of it. And there was these two helicopters who flew up from Vongtau. They flew up, they heard, they heard what was going on on the net. Um, on the radio transmissions and they're like right we'll fly up to Nui Dat to see if we can help out in any way we can and they did they said well we need to get ammo to these lads and they said right okay we'll stop the artillery fire for literally one minute you're gonna have like one minute to get your chopper in there push the boxes get the boxes in there and out and uh and they did it uh they flew out there and what they had to do was they had to wrap all the ammunition boxes into blankets because they couldn't land the helicopters because the uh vegetation was too thick from the rubber plantation uh so all they could do was is go over the top of the trees tilt the ch- ch- uh, tilt the helicopters tilt the hueys and just let the boxes just fall out the helicopter into the jungle canopy hoping that the boxes actually landed in the proximity of d company which they do and it, and it shows that in the um in the movie as well um because actually their, their company sergeant major was actually almost killed by one of the falling boxes which they show in it as well um that's something that was quite well documented uh from yeah, veteran I, accounts I, I was just going to say that there, there like there's a few things that uh happened in that in those shots that really happened like um the pilot he said, I'll go. And they were like, oh, no, you, you can't go. It's too hot. You can't go. And he's like, going, well, I'm going. And they're like, well, we should ask the air marshal or the, the I don't know what the air, air Force ranks is. They have strange, I don't know, weird stuff on their shoulders that we can never tell what they are. But um, he was like, going, yeah, we'll, we'll ask the air vice marshal or whatever. And he's like, going, no, just don't ask him because he can't say no then. We're going. Um, and like that then, when they did drop the ammunition, they nearly killed the company sergeant major. Yeah, and the other thing as well, which they don't, which I think they should have shown, because that was another part of the like, kind of the story, because they popped smoke. <coughs> um, they do, there is there is a scenario in the film where smoke is popped. That's for the airstrike because the Americans came in and done an airstrike of napalm for them, um, and they couldn't get they, they they basically couldn't see the smoke. But when the um, ammunition came in, the smoke did did pop. And it did come through the canopy, but they, but the thing was that the smoke had changed color. What color they were using, I can't remember now. But from the cordite that was in the trees, from the explosion from the shells, uh, the smoke grenade actually changed color as it came through the canopy. And when they did the color identification, they actually thought the NVA had listened in on their on the radio frequency, and they actually popped their own color of smoke to try and decoy it. They hadn't. It was just a case of the smoke changing color as it went through the canopy for the mixture through the cordite smoke. Yeah, I think it, I think it was something like red to pink. Yeah, it threw, was something threw, like that. Yeah, they threw they threw a red, but by the time it got through the canopy, it was like a, a light pink. Yeah, um, so that was what the mix up of the colors was. 
so they um, they ended up popping another smoke grenade, uh, which which went through the canopy again, but didn't change colour. So that's how the ammo got on top. But they don't show that bit in the film, um, which I thought would have been quite a good bit to have put in. But does it differentiate from the story? No, it don't. It's just that I think it's just from that perspective of looking at the battle and studying it a bit you you just it's those little things you pick up on going hey you know that would have been really good if you put that in there but we never know they may have even had that in there it just ended up on the cutting room floor yeah i suppose it's one of those things about war movies you know it's like battle on 10 lasted 48 hours roughly 24 24 hours 48 hours by the time they went back in for casualties and stuff like that the movie is what two hours long an hour and a half long so you you really have to pick and choose what you put into the movie i suppose absolutely I think in a battle like that isn't all happening in one go. Uh, you know, you've got your lulls in the battle and things. Like that. And obviously with a film like that, they want to keep it exciting. They want to keep the momentum going as well. What was your sort of favourite scene of the film, John? Uh, well, there's a few. Um, definitely the one stands out um, was two guys. There's two scenes. Okay, I'll go to two scenes. Initially, you had a sergeant from 11 platoon went to the helipad and he collected two brand new guys into country. Um, and he was explaining about them going to, first of all, D Company, explaining about Major Smith, that he was a bit of a professional soldier, a bit of a hard guy to get on with. He expected him to go through certain rules, but cut that scene and then go into the battle. The initial start of the battle when 11 platoon has just crossed that road, they've cleared a house um, or a shack that they've come across. And then all of a sudden the jungle goes quiet. From a guy who has been overseas, has seen a small bit of stuff fly around the place, it rang true because that's what happens. All of a sudden it gets eerie, it gets quiet, you can't hear birds, you can't hear flyers, you can't hear wasps, you can't hear nothing. All you can hear is your heartbeat and silence and that's exactly what happened in that scene and then all of a sudden the gunfire started and those two guys that we were uh, and initially introduced to as brand new guys after coming into the country or mm-hmm. after getting zapped straight off the board that was the initial scene to me whereas these guys were doing everything they should they were doing what they were supposed to do they were um, crossing their t's and dotting their eyes so to speak and then all of a sudden, they're in the wrong place at the wrong time. And then that's it. They do capture the atmosphere really well in it. It does oh, give you that sort of suspense as well, doesn't it? The sound effects and special effects in that film were absolutely fantastic. Yeah, they um, were. They had everything, the sounds, the explosions. Um, it was quiet when it was meant to be quiet. It was loud when it was meant to be loud. It was it, The special effects and the sounds were fantastic. Yeah, so what, what was your uh, second one then, John? Uh, the second one, I suppose, would have to be going back to my countryman of, I can't remember, his, his nickname was Paddy. He was a sergeant. He was a professional soldier. He was an Irish guy. Um, he'd have to get, he, he was shot through both calves. Uh, in, the, in the movie, it says he was shot in the ankles. It wasn't actually. In... in, in in, in real life, in the documentary, um, he was actually shot through both calves, um, providing covering fire for 10 platoon, 10 platoon was retreating later on when it was getting out of conflict or getting out of the contact. Um, he was shot through both calves and he actually crawled back to uh, HQ company lines. And 
the guys in HQ Company lines didn't realise he was coming through, obviously, because he was after being cut off. And they start spitting rounds back at him or shooting back, back at rounds at him. And it's just because he got the accent down 100%. He calls him every name under the rising sun in an Irish accent and tells him, stop shooting. And he gets brought back in by um, a friend of his. Uh, he gets shot in the shoulder and he falls back on top of Paddy, who is after saving. And then Paddy slaps him into the back of the head. And he's like, get off my legs. I'm shot. Pull yourself together. Like, do you know that was definitely my second because it was it was a bit of dark humor as well and it was just um and it was just the humor um these guys are after being in the crap but yet they can still have a laugh about it you know definitely see that that humor come through as well in some of the scenes and that last scene you mentioned brings on quite nicely to one of my favorite scenes in it as well because where we mentioned uh buddy went to get the uh platoon sergeant from Tempatoon uh, to help drag him in um uh, so buddy was actually he's actually aborigine there's an interview with buddy uh by the real buddy uh and he said how that happened and again it was another one of those dramatizations like when the platoon sergeant of Tempatoon initiated the contact it was portrayed really well and buddy getting wounded was really good as well because buddy said he dragged him in pulled him in got him onto the ground um and he said, then he, there he goes, then I realized I'd been shot in the shoulder. I'd been shot in the back right shoulder because I never felt it, though. And the actor doesn't show it either. He's dragging him in. You know, they're getting cover in fire as they're pulling him in. And then he, then he just like puts his hand there. And he's like, oh, I've just been shot here. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And that, that, that was one of my uh, favorite scenes from that. How that was portrayed, because that was uh, one of my favorite little uh, anecdotes from the battle. And I'm glad they uh, put that in as well. And, and, and that little detail as well uh my my second one is when they're actually moving through the um exclusion zone at the beginning so they're all spaced out um across the open ground heading their way into long tan into the rubber plantation and i like that because like all the blokes yeah that some in some instances yeah they're a little bit too close together but they gotta be because if they're in if they're doing the proper spacings then you're not going to get all the blokes in shot but the premise of it when especially when they're doing the the larger shots like the uh overhead shots and things like that as of moving through that uh free fire zone to get out into the rubber plantation really good and the blokes are moving really well and the other thing i liked in that as well is like you got the lads some of the lads having a little bit of a chat and things like that. but you can also hear the echo of the concert happening back at the base camp and that was a brilliant little detail because that's the other thing we mentioned before is the veterans were saying where even when we got into the rubber plantation, we could still hear the concert uh, two, two, three kilometers away going on. And that was, and that was another good one as well, was the concert, uh, and that real sort of party atmosphere to it as well. So there are fav- two of our favorite uh, scenes from the film. Let's talk about uh, the accuracies of it. So I think they didn't do. In, in a general grand scheme of things, like say from a kit perspective, I don't think they did a too bad a job of it, to be honest. Um, you know, you see Owen guns, you know, not many, you know, Owen guns, how many films you see an Owen gun, even in World War II films with the Australians, how many, you know, you, you never see Owen guns. So you got Owen guns uh, with the section commanders and some of the radio operators, and you got that good mix of SLR and M16s as well. And the web equipment, they did a really good job. Because I thought one of my expectations when I 
was first sitting to watch it, they're just going to be wearing American webbing or something like that. But they didn't. They did a really good job. They had that proper early Vietnam look of them uh, where they're wearing that really good mix of 37 pattern, 44 pattern and American 56 pattern. And we'll see a few 44 packs kicking around as well in there. So, yeah, so it was a really sort of really good mix. And, and you don't really see 44 packs, well, even, even from a collector's perspective, you don't see 44 pack large packs turn up much too often. So I thought well, that was a really good uh, touch. But the one thing, the, 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 uh, the interesting thing that I found about the kit, um, like, as you said, but, uh, the, you'd struggle to find something wrong with the kit for the, the movie Dangerous Close, Danger Close. Whoever did their wardrobe and stuff, did a fantastic job. You just said an interesting thing there about the 44 packs. You can nearly look at the guys with 44 packs in the movie and they were Malayan veterans. The likes of the sergeant from 10th platoon, the sergeant from 11th platoon, the uh, Major Smith himself. Uh, I think he had a 44 pack. Um, uh, the warrant officer or the company sergeant major, they had 44 packs. So, even to that detail, because those guys would have used 44 pattern in Malaya. Um, and then not just that as well about getting back to the 56 pattern, the American 56 pattern stuff. The guys that were carrying M16s had M16 pouches. The guys had who were carrying SLRs either had the 37 pattern pouch. It wasn't just a walk into wardrobe and go, oh, you're a rifleman. There's a 56 pattern, even though you've got an SLR or you've got an Owens gun or you've got something like that. So... Every small little aspect of the detail that the kit was involved in was looked at. And I believe an awful lot of the veterans were on site or on, on, on set in relation to the making of the movie. And an awful lot of the extras that they used in the movie um, were Afghan and Iraq veterans. So the weapons handling and the spacing and guys moving like soldiers should move um, that was free. They didn't have to pay for it because these guys are veterans. They've been doing it, possibly some of them, 10, 11, 20, 20 years at that stage. So they knew what they were doing. Yeah, and that's absolutely right. And you can see that in those overhead shots when they're moving for the exclusion uh, uh, across the exclusion zone. You can see it, that the blokes are moving how they should be. And, and also what comes with that is they're wearing the kit properly. How many war films have we seen, John, where... The kit is wearing them and they're, you know, they don't wear the kit. The kit wears them. <laughs> you know what I mean? You know, they are wearing the kit. Um, you know, you haven't got like belts halfway up their chest or got a pouch, like an ammo pouch right around their back and, and things like that. They are wearing it how they should be wearing it. I, th I think you just hit the nail on the head. They wore the kit rather than the kit wear them. Um, like the... the their belts were worn on their hips. The webbing moved the way it should move. Um, there was no slack in it. It wasn't wobbling around. It was, that, even down to that detail, it was actually fantastic. Yes, it was. So obviously, come to the end of the film, we won't give too much away. They do make it out of the um, of the battle. Another interesting bit in there as well, because they, they needed to get the uh, APCs in there to bring them out. Um, so you then start seeing another story happening as well. So you got the story of the um, APCs trying to make their way into uh, into the rubber plantation as well. Actually, at the end, when they got the OK to actually move forward, 
one of them has to turn back because the colonel wants to go out to Long Tan to go and see the blokes. And they're like, well, we can't. We need to keep moving. It's like, all right, mate, right, you go back and go and pick him up. We're going to keep on going, um, which actually happened during the battle. Uh, the only thing I, I, I uh, is the, the ending bit is very, I wouldn't say it's very Hollywood, but it's quite a bit of poetic license mixed in there on how the sort of the battle ended. Um I think I know I'm not I'm not going to give too much away, but it, it's very much or not so much a Hollywood ending, but it's the way it was kind of sort of perceived it, through my eyes watching it. Um wasn't quite how the end actually happened. Yeah, um the ending for me was a bit short when you when when you I, I don't know, it's hard to describe because I don't want to, as you said, I don't want to give anything away. Um, the, APC, the APC is going up towards to get D Company. Um, that could have been a movie in itself because they had absolutely nuttiness and, and, and strange stuff happen to them along the way. Like that, APC is having to turn back to get a colonel. Um, and they, they, they sustained their own casualties as well and that push in to get D Company. But, um, yeah, the ending. The ending for me, I'm, I'm the same as you. It just, it lacks something. Um, th- there was there was something lacking about it. Yeah, it did. And you know, there was those little. Again, we're going to those. I don't know if it's being pedantic or not, but it's like those little details. Like when they first get into the rubber plantation, troop commander, he said that he goes, "We saw blokes running around the outside of the APCs." He goes, "At first, because because of the way, because obviously floppy hats and all that." He goes, "We thought we thought we'd found D Company at first, and then he said suddenly we realised they had AK forty sevens." I'm like, "Right, no, <laughs> lace them up." He's like, "But for that sort of brief couple of minutes, the APCs were actually driving through a swarm of MVA soldiers, which they don't show um, in the film." <laughs> That's one thing that we forgot to say, I suppose. Like, half of this battle was fought in a monsoon rainstorm. So everyone uh, initially was green or tan or whatever. You could tell each other apart. But because it had been raining so heavy, everybody looked, all their uniforms looked black. So it was hard to tell who was who unless they had an AK-47 or an SLR or an M16. It was a terrific downpour because it was literally in the sort of probably the opening maybe hour or two of the battle actually started that the monsoon started and it pretty much continued raining all the way up till the very end of the battle. That's it. I don't think um don't I don't I don't even I don't think it ended until the following morning, if I remember. Yeah, so the, the initial firefight, uh well the actual battle finished with the APCs arriving. They they pulled out of the rubber plantation, they pulled out the rubber plantation. Um, I think it was B Company that relieved them. Um, but the MVA, they'd pulled out by then. They'd, um, they'd, they'd done one, uh, but they stayed in the field that night. So that night they stayed in the field. Uh, Harry Smith, they were told to go back. Um, and he said, no, he goes, Our 11, the rest of 11 platoon are out there. We need to go and find them. Um and also the other blokes from the other platoons that are still out there. You know, they don't know if they're dead or wounded at the moment. They're just missing in action at the moment. A little a little uh, thing too as well. They found two, was it two or three guys alive? Uh, yes, they did. Were... Yeah, yeah, from 11 platoon. Yeah, yeah. They, they, they'd laid out with the uh, wounds, which were quite um, horrific wounds um, that they'd actually received. And they actually laid in the jungle all night. Um, 
just hoping that the MVA didn't get their hands on them. Um, but yeah, they but they found them though. Luckily, none of them got dragged away in the in the dead of night by the NVA um, or the VC. Um, luckily, the uh, lads from D Company actually found them the next morning. Um, but what I liked also at the end was when they did the company roll call. Almost, it then became a a, uh, a sort of a role of honour, and I thought that was a really nice touch to the ending of the film. Yeah, um, it, it was because as he's reading the names, if I remember correctly, it goes to black screen, and the next thing, the roll of honour starts. Um, so it, it was quite a poignant way to remember those guys. And it was quite a nice way to actually end the film as well. Um, because then your little extra captions came up about guys. But the other thing as well, at the end of the film, what brings it all back to reality? Not only have you got that sobering moment of seeing all these names appear on the screen, you then got the character, the actors uh, and the real people next to them as well. So you got the photograph of, say, uh, uh, Travis Fimmel as Major Smith. So you got the picture of him. Um, and then beside him is a period picture of the real Major Smith as well. And it, and it, and it, and it, and it shows you that, hang on a minute, hang on a minute, they are actually portraying real people. And some of the likenesses were actually quite good, I thought, especially uh, Buddy as well. Um, so there's a few good likenesses when they did actually did the casting. But yeah, so that is Danger Close. So out of 10, John, what would you give Danger Close? Oh, I'd give it a nine because I'll never give anything a 10. But yeah, definitely a nine. They're just minor little things. But like, yeah, definitely a nine. Uh, I absolutely agree, John. I give this a nine out of 10 as well. And and I highly recommend anybody to watch this film. If you, if you, even if you don't really have that interest in the Vietnam War or anything like that, but just to watch the story of what these blokes did on that day. Um and it and it does and it, and the film accomplishes what it set out to do. It tells the story, um, and I think it done the lads justice as well. Yeah, it definitely did, and it's probably one of the only movies that I can think of that has a documentary that accompanies it. That the movie is from the documentary, from what you see in the documentary, the movie is actually very, 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 very authentic. And nearly true to life. Okay, yeah, they have Hollywood, some tiny bits of it, but it is, it's probably the truest movie to the real thing that you will ever see. Absolutely. Um, yeah, it is uh, exactly what you've just said, John. So I think that brings us very nicely to the end of this podcast. So, John, thank you so much, mate, for popping in and joining us for this podcast, mate. Not a bother, mate. Anything at all to help Living History UK. What they do is absolutely fantastic. Well, thank you very much, John. Yeah, it took the wind out my sails then. <laughs> thank you so much to everyone for tuning in and listening to this episode of the Young Tentacles podcast. If you would like to support us in our work, please consider joining Patreon. Um, a link is in the description below. Also, a link in the description to the YouTube documentary all about the Battle of Long Tan as well. If you'd like to see the movie Long Tan, it's currently on, I think it's on Netflix or Amazon Prime. They're both free at the moment, so get them while they're free.
ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.